Hi, I want to welcome you to something a little different than the normal Noise Creators podcast in that this is going to actually be a chapter from the audiobook of my last book, Processing Creativity. They say if you love something, then you have to set it free. So that's exactly what I'm doing. A year ago, I put out this book and I really want it to keep spreading to people. And I realized one of the ways you have to do that sometimes is by making it free. So from right now till July 1st, this book will be free and a different chapter of it will come out every week for the next few weeks. And it'll stay available for free till July 1st. And then I'm going to delete these podcasts as well. During this time, the Kindle book will be 99 cents, but the physical book will remain at the regular price because, you know, they cost money to print. So enjoy this free audiobook. It's a very similar subject to what you hear on this podcast most of the time. And if you enjoy it, please, please, please pay it back. You know, this book usually costs almost $20 on Audible. The way you can pay it back is just telling somebody else who will enjoy it about it. It's really important to me that these ideas spread. And that's why I'm doing this. So I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you spread the word. Thank you. Hey, before we get started, I want to tell you about Manic Merch, who's sponsoring this podcast. They want you to stop selling merch like an idiot. In 10 minutes, you can upload designs and sell merch with your own store of every popular merch item, while Manic Merch handles sales, shipping, customer service issues so that creators can create and not be bothered while still profiting the way they would if they did it themselves. Manic Merch is perfect for musicians, movies, YouTubers, podcasts, meme makers, startups, and anyone else who has good ideas for merch designs. Let me tell you about some of the key features of Manic Merch. You can set up a store in minutes for no money down. All you have to do is upload your merch designs and tell us how much you want to make off each one and we'll take care of the rest. You can avoid all the headaches of customer service emails, packing up packages, and heading to the post office. There's no financial risk since you put no money down or headaches for you to start selling merch. Fans buy more merch when they get to choose how to express themselves. You can upload your merch designs and sell more merch by allowing fans to choose the colors and what they want them printed on. Whether it's t-shirts, sweatshirts, lighters, hats, or coffee mugs, they have over 20 different items that you can print on. You get to set your own prices where you can lower your prices if you want to sell more and raise them if you want to make more from each sale. You can also get the email of everyone who buys from you and you get paid every month on time and you also have the ability to track sales. Stop selling merch like an idiot and sign up for a store at manicmerch.com today. Chapter 6. The Race Against the Loss of Objectivity Once you've written a great song, the most treacherous part of creating is maintaining objectivity. If you lose objectivity, the ability to judge options is compromised, resulting in poor decision-making since you can only guess at what's right. When discussing music among those who work at perfecting songs, the most commonly cited problem is the loss of objectivity. What makes crafting music so difficult is that even if you have intent and know exactly what you want, you can lose perspective along the way. If you hear a song the same way too many times, you get used to the element's relationship with one another. You subsequently lose the ability to objectively hear changes to decipher whether they improve or detract from your intent. Just as treacherous is you can make poor decisions if you don't listen to a mix properly. If you're too focused on the details, you can lose track of the big picture. All these choices are crucial to consider, yet there's rarely any good insight into how to properly use the tools at hand to stay as objective as possible. There are two plagues that kill musicians' objectivity constantly that we should define. Demoitis. While the CDC has never studied it, the most common affliction among musicians is demoitis. This affliction occurs when someone has heard a mix of a song for so long that any change to it sounds wrong. The only way the song sounds right is the way it was in the mix that the afflicted person is used to. 
Demoitis is contracted by orally listening to a mix of a song. It's inevitable to contract it after prolonged listening of a single mix of a song. A rare breed of musicians are immune to it, but for most of us, the more we listen to a version of a song, the more we get used to it in that form, and the harder it is to be open to changing it. Analysis Paralysis Anyone that's ever tried their hand at perfecting a song has probably experienced what's known as analysis paralysis. Barry Schwartz explains the term in his book, The Paradox of Choice, as the phenomenon when we become paralyzed by the different options in front of us. In music, this is most often experienced when we've heard so many options, we can no longer make a good decision. This regularly happens when surfing through plug-in presets or drum samples. This affliction can cripple us creatively. The loss of perspective from working too long on a song or hearing too many alternative ideas is debilitating for artists. The song sounds different, but all emotional resonance to judge an option is depleted leading to confusion about what the best option is. This usually causes the creative process to cease, as the song becomes abandoned or is completed as is since the artist can no longer tell which choice to make. The Ticking Clock of Objectivity Producer Greg Wells, known for his work with Katy Perry and Adele, has said, The hardest part of making music is you can never hear it the way a listener does the first time. Now, before you crucify me about how much I've written about making the music you want to hear and not concerning yourself with the listener, Take in the concept. As you craft your music, it gets harder and harder to tell if you're doing the right thing since your excitement for a song declines in time as you get used to it. Just like the songs of others you enjoy, resonance dies with repeated listens. To make matters worse, as you work on a song, your objectivity gets more and more skewed as you get used to the way parts sound. Elements you find emotionally resonant on a first listen compared to elements you find interesting after hearing the song for the hundredth time are often quite different. To make good decisions for our music, we need to acknowledge this is a race we're running whenever we develop a new song. At some point, your objectivity gets depleted and your ability to make good decisions will be reduced. You must always be conscious of the balance between underdeveloping a song and developing it for so long you lose objectivity. Effectively listening to maintain objectivity. Whenever you're creating a song, there's a race to keep the momentum and excitement of the song going. While you want to give enough consideration to the composition, you must execute it fast enough to not lose your perspective. This struggle is one of the hardest balances to strike in the creative process. If you flog a song to death scrutinizing every detail, it can suck the life out of it. With that said, focusing on the details can also bring out the magic in it. Finding that balance is crucial to the execution of making a great song. In order to maintain my objectivity as a producer, I abstain from writing songs with a band from day one. After I hear what they've initially written, I may send a band back to the drawing board and say, the verse works, but scrap the rest of the song. But I won't be there while they rewrite it. If I have to be in the room as the band tries out 400 variations, I have then lost the same objectivity as them which defeats my purpose as a producer. To do my job effectively, I can't sit through the infinite possibilities of songwriting since I need to maintain an objective quality control role. I must still have objectivity after a song is as fleshed out as a band can make it on their own, so I need to minimize micromanagement throughout the process. While this doesn't sound very efficient, it keeps me with an objective mind to evaluate what they write. This is much more valuable than any time saved. When it comes time to track guitars for six to eight hours of tedious tuning and punch-ins, I have to leave since my perspective gets lost if I sit through that. If an extensive development of harmonies is needed to make a song work, I'll also leave the room for that so I don't get tainted by the options and tedium of tracking them. This allows me to not be biased in my judgment of a performance by the effort extended to record it or how long it would take to redo it if it doesn't feel right. If I don't have to punch in the guitars for three hours to fix them, then I can make my decision based solely on making the song great. 
not my annoyance with the process. I should say that I'm not the only producer who employs this method. Both Rick Rubin and Howard Benson are famous for this technique. Demoitis. The struggle is real. If you sit a bunch of musicians and producers down in a room, you'll get an earful of stories on the woes of the creative process. Inevitably, there will be stories of the big studio budget that couldn't outdo the demos recorded at home. The next story will be how a band constantly compared studio recordings to their demos, leading to the downfall of their record since they weren't open to developing their demo ideas to their actualization. The funny thing is, they may be both right or completely wrong in their assessment. Whether or not they were right is obviously subjective, but they may have made a different decision if their objectivity wasn't tainted by getting too attached to their demos. One of the most difficult balances to strike is doing enough drafts in your demos to get a full picture so that you can make a great song while not drafting them to the point that you're so attached to the demo's sound that you can't hear the song any other way. You must give thorough consideration to your demos, but not at the sacrifice of your objectivity. You need some despair when recording the songs your audience will hear. The same idea goes for band rehearsal. While everyone wants to be well rehearsed when going into the studio, there's a point where you're so used to the way the song sounds in rehearsal that any tweaks for the better sound unnatural. This leaves little possibility of objectivity when production decisions are made in the studio crippling the development of a song. To make the struggle worse, the first version of a song that someone hears and wants to listen to again and again is usually the one they'll like best. Test yourself on this. The next time you hear more than one version of a song from a musician you love, see if you consistently enjoy the first version you hear of the song more. As someone that's pulled their friends on this for the years I've been writing this book, the resounding answer is the first version you listen to continuously is hard to get over. This means all of your teammates who listen to your demos numerous times are on team demo whenever making a choice as to whether a part of the demo is better since they heard it that way first. However, there is an exception that shouldn't be overlooked. About 25% of the time, the demo can be beaten, even for those who loved it. But this is so hard to measure that it's almost irrelevant. On projects with a decent budget, you'll regularly see bands who have lost perspective take their record to a mixer or a different producer at the end to help make better decisions. In pop today, we see countless producers on a pop song, since suits commonly think a song hasn't reached its potential after a producer completes their work. So they employ another producer to further explore what can be done. The fresh perspective they have can clearly see the dilemmas that have left the musician in paralysis. This objectivity goes for every mastering engineer's job, which is mostly about objectivity in that they're fresh ears that put some final touches on what perspective you may have lost in the mixing process. Avoiding the loss of objectivity from demos and scratch tracks. Since we know we're trying to avoid getting too used to the way the demo sounds, what can we do to avoid this plague? While you must make the music you want to hear, you need to exercise restraint in your consumption of this music. The more you listen to a specific recording of your song, the more objectivity you lose. Conversely, abstaining from listening to your demos won't allow you to gain perspective on what you've recorded. What's so tragic about this is listening to the same mix repeatedly can impair you from making a good decision, yet you'll feel confident that this is what your heart feels is right. Unfortunately, many musicians decide to go with a demo element when evaluating a song only to return to it a year later to discover there was room for improvement that they had been blind to due to a loss of objectivity. Demos are one of the most useful tools at our disposal, but to make them effective, you must exercise restrained listening with concentrated note-taking. Even if that note-taking is as informal as cranking down the windows on your car to listen as you would any other song, this is some of the most important time you could spend as long as it's rationed. Excessive listens with half-minded attention only further cement the way a demo sounds, hindering your objectivity to future development. Scratch tracks can poison objectivity as well. If you've been hearing a scratch vocal while you work on a song for three weeks, inferior vocal inflections can skew your objectivity away from those that further the emotional resonance of a song. 
as you become used to how the scratch track sounds. The nuances of the performance become so ingrained that any alterations that stray from the demo seem wrong. To alleviate this, I'll have a singer sing a scratch vocal a handful of times at the start of each day before we start to work on a song. I'll then change the take we hear throughout the day. This way the performance is always different so I can hear the best of their inflections as we record the song. This technique can help preserve objectivity immensely as well as help find a clear picture of what the vocal should be doing when it comes time to track it. When producing records, I severely ration my influence from demos to maintain a higher level of objectivity than musicians. In the best case scenario, I won't have heard any demos for weeks before we start pre-production or the recording process. When a band sends me a demo, I try to take it in as fast as I can so I never get used to it. This usually means listening to each song one to five times while taking notes. After this initial listen, along with one session of re-evaluation, I never listen to the demo until we're done recording the song. While the self-produced home studio trend continues to grow, this objectivity is usually what makes a producer worth their paycheck on a project. While I've talked a lot about the demo being detrimental to your objectivity, it can also be the greatest savior at the end of recording a song. If I've done a good job of forgetting the demo, putting it on once we think the recording of a song is done can be a life-saving safety net to make sure we've exceeded everything good about the demo. I can't count how many times I've revisited a demo after tracking a song to find two or three cool elements to bring back that adds so much resonance to a song. Preventing Demoitis in Mixes The other culprit of demoitis is how the interaction of levels and demos and rough mixes influence how those afflicted judge a mix of a song. When tracking songs, the vocals and drums are turned up excessively loud to help performers get a good performance. Once a song is mixed, these levels are placed in a more realistic balance, so those who have been hearing a tracking mix feel a loss of excitement when they're mixed. I found a few practices helpful to prevent demoitis caused by tracking mixes. Don't set levels of any instrument excessively loud compared to the others in a rough mix. During tracking, it can be helpful to have drums turned up loud to perform tight to the groove. Take these down when making rough mixes. Otherwise, it can be hard to get used to more reasonable balances when mixing a song later. Make different mixes each day. One of the benefits of mixing consoles compared to DAWs was that they wouldn't allow mixes to be the same each day. The variance of different fader levels didn't allow your mind to get used to exact balances, allowing you to hear different perspectives on the levels of a song to judge against later. Make a change or stop dwelling on the demo. Unless you're adding or subtracting from your demo, don't give superfluous listens without making new versions. Come back to it with fresh ears. There are some experienced artists who are immune to demoitis and they've never even experienced it. This rare percentage can always discern the good ideas from the bad. Many of my producer friends find that as years go on, they get better and better at trusting their gut to discern what's good and bad, as opposed to being biased to the familiar. This also tends to come with those who learn how to judge every choice emotionally instead of with concepts that stem from the head. How to regain your perspective. It's pretty much inevitable that at some point you'll lose your perspective. Thankfully, you can find it again by employing a few tricks. Revisit the greats. Your great songs playlist can be the ticket to regaining perspective. In my experience, losses of perspective commonly stem from making judgments against previous drafts you made without outside perspective of other music you enjoy. Your head is so inside your own work, you're not regularly gaining feedback from what has been resonant to you in the past to gain objectivity. Revisiting your favorite music to judge how tight grooves are, the level of certain elements in a mix, or the overall timbre of a song can be a reference to help steer you in the right direction. I find if I revisit my favorite songs for an hour, followed by a problem song, my perspective has a true north that's easy to see again. Muting or soloing. When mixing, employing the mute button or soloing instruments to analyze songs is a basic practice that's commonly dismissed as being too critical. While soloing a track can make a song that has too strong a groove sound totally wrong, 
It could also unveil a perspective that shows a flaw. There are plenty of instruments that may sound odd when soloed, especially if they're played to a rhythm track with a less conventional groove, but soloing a track can help give further perspective. Muting various elements of a song is equally helpful in finding perspective on what could be flawed or superfluous within it. Time. Time away from a song is a commodity many musicians don't have during the song development process. Sadly, it's the best cure for lost perspective. Anyone experienced in making music that's revisited a past recording in hindsight can hear clear flaws or better decisions they could have made. While there's no definite prescription for how much time it takes to regain objectivity, breaks from hearing a song regularly leads to huge epiphanies as well as regained perspective. Curing Analysis Paralysis Analysis paralysis is a particularly tricky affliction to navigate, as is pronouncing that sentence. If it's a regular occurrence, you're probably suffering from self-doubt and need to do some research or gut analysis of what feels right in your heart. The most common cases stem from having to make a big decision coupled with a lack of confidence in knowledge on how to make that decision. On a macro level, when coaching musicians through it in the past, I talked to them about what they'd like to be as an artist and what type of decision that artist would make. Reverse engineering how you can be confident in your decision is crucial since deciphering what would be beneficial about each path makes you more prepared when a choice must be made. This results in solidifying your intent since it's the best guide to avoid this troubling paralysis. You then need to start creating again. The only way this affliction subsides is by committing to a decision. Phased decision making. On a more micro level, options need to be whittled down over time by doing some batch decision making. If there are five directions for a vocal you can't decide between, get it down to three, and the next week get it down to one. If there's an unsure decision between two key elements, make a decision, and if it still annoys you weeks later, revisiting with a different mind will give your thoughts clarity. Giving up. Analysis paralysis commonly occurs at the end of a project, where uncompleted songs are left hanging to avoid making a crucial but confusing decision. Further consideration of what best reinforces intent and resonance is the only way to consider this. Time away can help regain objectivity to make that decision, but don't give up during a tight deadline. Employ outside ears to consider the decision after weighing your intent. Your lifeline. Just as the show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire has illustrated for years, occasionally we hit a point where we've either lost perspective or don't know what to do. Perhaps democracy has broken down or you've lost perspective and the only way to regain it is from trusted ears. You need an outside opinion whose thoughts may help you to come to a decision. The lifeline on the show is a person you can call who's not on the stage that can help you get through a tough, paralyzing choice. Once you hear from this trusted person, you usually regain objectivity by knowing whether to trust your instincts or not. Throughout my life, I've collected friends I can turn to for various dilemmas. Producer friends constantly shoot mixes back and forth when we've been working on a song for too long or received feedback on a song that's perplexing us. You should find someone outside of who you regularly make music with who can help give you perspective. Keeping these lifelines in mind can save your songs. Throughout post-mortem album interviews, you hear that musicians let their friends listen to songs to set them back on course. Sadly, they probably won't make you a millionaire by answering a question. Putting together a record and what's presently resonant. One of the toughest parts of putting together which songs go on a record, as well as their order, is judging them by their quality versus which ones you're currently excited about. The songs that are the oldest in the process can often be strong, but since they're old, they feel less resonant than they used to. In my last book, I argued that it helps to have outsiders give an objective perspective on choosing singles as well as an album's order. Since the artist, producer, and other team members have heard so many iterations of a song by the end of the album, perspectives can be skewed, favoring the most recent material since it's most resonant. 
Musicians have been poised outside ears due to a loss of perspective from constantly feeling their latest material is their greatest. Producer Bob Ezrin has done this for both Pink Floyd and Nine Inch Nails. Rick Rubin is famous for helping prolific artists like Kanye West with this qualm. More often than not, musicians reach out to trusted ears to get outside feedback for confirmation on whether the material they favor is truly their best. Zooming from macro to micro. Far too little consideration is given to developing the skill to zoom the view you're looking at a song in when analyzing music. What I mean by zooming is usually talked about in the classic saying, seeing the forest for the trees. In music, this commonly refers to listening to a single instrument instead of the whole song, or vice versa. Learning to do this type of zooming is how you consider both the details of the song you're making as well as the overall picture. If you only focus on small tree details, you'll make decisions that may hinder the overall resonance of your song by neglecting the bigger picture. This problem is musically illustrated in the classic story of the mixer who spends eight hours EQing a kick drum instead of listening to the interaction the kick drum is having with the song. They spend so long zoomed in on this small element that they fail to see obvious flaws and never get a proper perspective. This common beginner problem also plagues those well into their career, since they forget to change their perspective by zooming in and out regularly while evaluating their music. When I hear a new part of a song, I commonly give it two listens. One, to analyze the performance considering a micro view of the pitch, timing, and inflection in the performance, and again to consider the part's place of the song overall. Each of these listens requires a concentrated focus on their specific function. When evaluating a record as a producer, I make these evaluations in various zooms. Long zoom. Does this fit with the sound of the record? Are there too many parts like this on the record? Is this adding to the diversity of the record or making it too diverse? Medium zoom. Is the song too long? Does the chorus repeat enough? Is there enough tension built before the release? Is the bridge the right one for the song? Micro zoom. Is the drum fill going into the chorus right? Is the vocal melody too cluttered? Are there too many different parts in the accompaniment? Obstruct your view to change focus. While there are micro and macro zooms, unlike in photography, a blurred picture often shows us a valuable perspective. When developing a song, you could be zoomed too hard or soft and get stuck in that zoom. When I have a song on playback while checking email or reading Twitter, I'll notice very obvious things that were oblivious to me in a focused state where I zoomed in too far. This semi-distracted state isn't one to strive for continuously, but it can be helpful to take us out of the zoom we're presently in. When I'm on a particularly involved mix that's been thoroughly labored over, I find it helpful to take a break but keep it playing while I sit in the other room doing email. The flaws in the mix usually jump right out when I can't hear subtle EQ balances or a stereo image. This technique is used by countless engineers making music in every genre. This is similar to why you'll see multiple speakers in a recording studio. The big monitors in the wall are there to give you a detailed and loud picture. The medium-sized ones on the console are there to give a medium view that's optimized for critical decisions in the studio. The small speakers give a less detailed, more real-world vision of how a mix translates to the general public. Headphones give a hypercritical listen to tiny details that zooms in further than most speakers, which some feel is too tight of a zoom to make good choices. Best Practices Inspiration as the picture gets clearer. Demos are like fuzzy, out-of-focus pictures. You can hear the broad strokes and big ideas, but the details are usually clouded in the lack of clarity, tightness, and refinement of a demo. After all, that's what makes it a demo and not a final recording. As we begin to see the picture more clearly, it becomes more obvious what we should be doing to make a song reach its potential. It's inevitable as the picture becomes clearer that you'll begin to see mistakes, timing inconsistencies, clashing notes, and other flaws in your song. One of the hardest parts of recording music is it doesn't sound mixed and mastered while it's being recorded. 
GarageBand demos can sound unbearably harsh and cloudy, making it difficult to know if you need to work harder to achieve that feeling you get from your favorite recordings. Even in an expensive studio with a great producer and engineer, the rough mix doesn't quite sound like a finished record. So it can be confusing whether to critically judge what's being heard or if it'll sound better as the process goes on. To make matters worse, our brains have a tendency to see new flaws once they can concentrate on other details. I find singers get tunnel vision in their consideration of a song until their vocal is done. Then suddenly they can see the parts of a song they never noticed once their tight focus on the vocal is completed. Since commitment and solving problems give you clarity to focus elsewhere, it's only natural to gain the ability to notice new elements in a song. When you've been working on a record for a while, it can be a tense moment when someone points out a flaw that should have been caught a few weeks ago. Just as despised is when someone realizes during the mix another melody or harmony is needed to complete the song. While we can wish this epiphany came weeks earlier, until a song is heard in its near-completed form, it's often hard for musicians to know how a song sounds. The reaction of those paying for the session or trying to get home at a reasonable hour can be harsh when a drum track recorded a month ago all of a sudden has a newfound flaw. Experimentation One of the biggest fights in the studio is when someone decides to start experimenting when another member of the team is concerned there's not enough time to accomplish everything that's needed to make the song actualized. When this experimenting is being done on the clock, it can start to become detrimental to the recording coming out optimally. While this doesn't need to be a fight, the anger is not without justification in many cases. If studio time is limited so that you can only record the ideas you had before entering, taking precious time to experiment can be detrimental to the overall project. Before entering the studio, it should be considered that even the least inspired musicians gain it in the studio as they hear what's possible. If time isn't allocated for reconsideration, you won't be able to bring your songs to fruition as you see where new parts should be added. This means if you want a song to reach its full potential, you need to consider experimenting with solutions as the picture becomes clearer. Developing performances with increased perspective. This inspiration also goes for the development of nuance of performances. I recall the first time I got to record one of my favorite singers. I wasn't as nervous as I was when working with some of my favorite musicians of the past. Instead, I felt ready for this moment of working with a peer. He got on the mic asking me to give him three takes all the way through on each part of the song. After each take that was up to his standards, he'd say, keep that one. When he got to the end of the song, he said, okay, Burn me that as an mp3. I was horrified since these takes were horrible and way below my standards based on what I'd heard him do before. I then figured out that some magical editor fairies must be making him sound great in the post-production process, so I better brush up on my skills since what I had to work with was far below my expectations. Thoughts started going through my head of how embarrassing it would be to have my name on this track, but I kept my cool. As I tried to figure out what to say, he urged me to track keyboards for a bit. I saw him listen to his iPod with a piece of paper in the live room, taking notes with headphones on for a while. Upon completion of the keyboard track, he informed me, I'm ready to do this vocal for real. We then went line by line, working to get great takes where we both challenged him to get the best out of the vocal. By the time we reached the end, I had heard the impeccable vocals I was used to hearing from him. But to get to that level of performance, he needed to take the time to consider the nuances of his performance with as clear a vision as possible. This taught me a valuable lesson. Performers need time to contemplate their compositions by hearing them back. Oftentimes, when a musician completes a performance, they exclaim they could do it better, but a producer is hesitant to devote more time to the performance. When a musician performs a part, they are gaining a deeper consideration of the nuance they could bring to the performance after hearing it clearly. It's hard to have a clear perspective to think about tone and inflection, along with all the other aspects of a performance, until you have the chance to hear it back to react to what could be done with it. Once they gain a clear perspective, allowing someone to develop their performance is usually some of the best time spent. I regularly employ this method when I get a lackluster performance from a musician. I make them a mix and say, tomorrow you'll have a listen to this and thought about how to bring this song to a more emotional place. 
I tell them to take detailed notes and listen to some of their favorite artists to get ideas on how to emotionally elaborate on their performance. This is one of the best tools in my production toolbox. Working with a clear picture. One of the quickest ways to lose perspective is to build a song on unedited tracks, thus laying an unsteady ground for other decisions. When you lay down your rhythm tracks, be sure they're tracked tightly, as they will determine the feel for every track put on top of it. If you don't deal with quantization or any other editing you need to do immediately, these timing or pitch inconsistencies can blur the overall picture and cause bad judgments. This rule also goes for fixing flaws. Hearing an unedited track for too long commonly skews your perspective on editing decisions. If you hear an out-of-tune vocal for 30 straight listens, a tuned vocal can sound odd. But if you tune the vocal after a few critical listens, it's easy to make judgments on whether a tuning has sucked the life out of it. All editing in my productions happens immediately after a track is done so that I lose the minimum amount of objectivity. The more loose a track is, the more small inaccuracies in the groove of a track become blurred. This is why so many classic rock recordings were able to be so loose yet still feel so good. Whereas once you start playing to quantize drum machines, the timing and consistencies in each track become more apparent. The same goes for pitch. Once a digital synthesizer applies its perfect pitch to a song, the intonation of a guitar or vocal becomes glaring. This is why dance music vocals are commonly tuned more heavily than rock songs. Whereas in a 70s rock song when a vocal used to be coupled with poorly fretted guitars and bass, mild intonation was easily covered up by the already quote-unquote loose overall quote-unquote flaws in the track. Fixing it in the mix. Not only is fixing it in the mix one of the laziest, most destructive habits in music, but it also leaves flaws that are blurring the picture in your view. To make good decisions, you need to track with as good a mix as possible to get the best possible tones to build upon. This also goes for spending the time to work with a clearer, rough mix. Top producers work with a mix that's as close to the finished product as possible without slowing down the momentum of a session. One of the most notable improvements in the quality of the vocal performances I get from singers is to mix the instrumental of a song before I do vocals. Not only do musicians perform better to a good mix, but the judgments made are enhanced by hearing a more clear vision of how the song will sound later. Most musicians aren't trained in hearing what a rough mix should sound like, so by telling them everything will be fine while it gets fixed in the mix, their concerns during the process are silenced, making for diminished participation and doubting of their instincts. This closing down of a conversation hinders creativity immensely. To alleviate this, I give playbacks of a vocal performance with a typical mixing and mastering chain on, so that musicians with untrained ears can judge what we've done without having to qualify it with, it's not mixed. Many beginners who first get into recording on DAWs feel empowered by never having to commit to a sound. They let virtual instruments stay live to be tweaked until the final mix down are guitars that can be reamped, along with five mics on a snare drum, which can give you all the options in the world to get the exact sound you're looking for. Yet nearly everyone who makes influential records does the exact opposite, by committing to sounds to narrow their options throughout the creative process. They develop techniques to commit to decisions made as they go. This comes with a variety of benefits. Freeing your mind. Commitment allows you to free your mind to concentrate elsewhere. To make good decisions, we need to know commitments have been made in order to focus laser-like on the next concern. Psychological studies show that once we feel a decision is made, our focus can shift. If we have too many decisions to make, we're more likely to fall into option paralysis. Narrowing your attention. Commitment allows your attention to be put in other places. Similar to freeing your mind, if you don't have five tracks of snare options to tweak, you have a finite amount of tools to make it work, such as compression, distortion, EQ, etc. Reacting. 
When you commit, you're reacting to a less varied sound, which could determine the groove, pitch, or other parameters in your song. If you don't commit to MIDI instruments in your song while constantly tweaking them, it can be hard to focus on the tones and mix. You should commit in stages of your song so you can enhance your focus to different elements of the song. The contrarian's argument against commitment is, what happens when it hinders your creativity since you're stuck with a less optimal outcome? When we talk about commitment, we're not talking about it in the sense of the Catholic Church's till death do us part marriage stance. We're talking about making some decisions, which if you need to go back to once in a while, you can always divorce what you choose. This isn't some game you're playing with yourself where you need to pretend a technology no longer exists where you can't easily replace a snare sound once you've realized it isn't working. Many musicians commit by simply making certain options inactive or leaving their options in previous mixes. If you don't feel confident enough to commit to guitar sounds, commit to one and save your DI track so if you need to bail yourself out later, you're all set. Separating out demoing from recording in your home studio for commitment. There's a lot of talk of the writing and demoing process of this book, but with each year that passes, more and more musicians are writing and recording their music all within their own studio. This process takes away the traditional separation of writing and recording as two separate modes that have existed for nearly a century. I've always welcomed this change, since musicians having more control over their vision gives us more interesting creative flavors. With that said, it's worth analyzing what this lack of separation can bring to your process or possibly detract from it. The best part of the traditional divide of writing and recording was commitment. In the 1930s through the 60s, the way a song sounded in rehearsal was a commitment since little would be able to be done to enhance it past what you had to come up with in the studio since overdubbing and effects were so limited. After this period, the advent of producers who helped shape, polish, and eventually co-write with them led to a commitment that an artist needed to craft a song as good as they could get it on their own, but a producer would patch up any flaws. The producer, mixer, or in some cases, outside writers would then help shape the songs into a better work. Many producers in A&R bemoan this erosion of standards for being a degradation of their craft of songwriting since musicians aren't working tirelessly to a song's ultimate actualization. Instead, when songs are brought into the studio, they're good enough to record. And that standard seemed to slip lower and lower with the advent of Pro Tools and musicians believing that anything could be fixed by a computer wizard. This fix-it-in-the-mix philosophy is the Achilles heel of countless productions. This borderline of commitment became a zigzagged scribble by the time home recording became what it is today, which is part of nearly every great record's process to some extent. While many musicians may only use home recordings as demoing and drafting, the line has been blurred for almost every musician making music today. With that established, is there still a benefit to separating writing from recording when you record your own music? I think the answer lies in the commitment it brings. What many home recorders do is have a demo time where their soft synths and other sounds can still be tweaked and arrangements are malleable. But if you watch interviews with most of the top quote-unquote bedroom producers, they all say that they eventually begin a commitment process. They print down or freeze the synths to begin working on perfecting a song that's essentially the recording process. They then start a mixing process and commit the way traditional recordings have. This practice is commonly lost on novice home recordists. Having a controlled process gives many musicians a focus that benefits from the past, but has the flexibility of the future. While it's beneficial to not have a ticking clock on the mixing process at home, the distinctions between the parts of the process are often able to bring a project a separation that benefits an artist's focus. In pop production, the process most often has the initial writer demo a song, and it goes through various stages as a beat writer will hand it off to a producer who polishes the song and the vocals. Then there's a later commitment as it goes to mixing that all the tracking and editing are completed. Seeing your production in stages can help you commit to gaining a new focus perspective. Chapter 7. Inspiration, Research, and Fluency True inspiration is impossible to fake. Arthur 
also known as the actor Joseph Gordon-Levitt in the movie Inception. Inspiration is to creativity what food is to energy. Without inspiration, there's nothing to draw from creatively. Even if there's a limited amount of inspiration, the perspiration is weak like an athlete trying to compete without proper nutrition. What we take in as inspiration leads to how open or closed our mind is to possibility, which forms how we express our intent. If your mind hasn't been opened to the possibility of certain options, it's far more difficult to understand they're available to use in your expression. Inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just show up and get to work. Chuck Close. Some of the most generalized advice about creating is to sit down and force it out whether or not it's good. The above quote is used by inspiration deniers that think you sit down at a desk and start plunking away until a song comes out, with no concern for the potency of what's created since content must be made. This thought neglects that you need to have inspiration to express emotionally to make good music. While you can always produce some bland content, great music needs inspiration to fuel a potent expression of what you want to say. The boneheads who push this argument value content generation, not the potent expression of new truths that music can bring us. Inspiration is often compared metaphorically to fishing, but I can find a better comparison in farming. Your inspiration is the seed of what you could perspire. If you're keeping the soil healthy by regularly watering your inspiration seeds, they can grow into perspiration. While not every seed of inspiration grows into a healthy crop, you need to take in enough inspiration that you have crops to choose from when others don't fully grow. Time needs to be spent nurturing these seeds by nurturing the proper nutrition for them to grow, along with perspiring enough of it that you have sufficient choices to harvest. One of the reasons there's so much bad advice about inspiration is the huge spectrum of where artists fall and how inspired they are presently. On one side, there's someone who's extremely inspired with ideas oozing out of them who doesn't need to ingest anything else since the last thing they need is even more ideas. On the opposite side is a more experienced artist who's empty from creating so much that they no longer have enough inspiration to make anything that lives up to their standards. Also on this side of the spectrum are those who are new to creating in a format that don't have enough inspiration to make resonant work. They've yet to take in enough nutrition to perspire a new expression they find emotionally resonant. Most artists are in need of sub-inspiration in the many different facets of creation, so the idea of just getting to work ignores the fact that much of the work is getting inspired. To muddy the waters even more, some songs come right out of us in a seamless flow, whereas others are struggles to find what we're trying to express. This can be confusing, to say the least. But the most common reason a song isn't meeting our standards is the inspiration hasn't come to us on how to express ourselves to paint the emotional picture we're trying to convey. To realize it, there's a variety of practices needed to get it out into the world if we want to continually sustain the ability to easily express the inspiration within us. Research is part of the process. Waiting for the muse is a bunch of bullshit. You need to go out there and find it. Molly Crabapple. No one would ever tell you to write a book or a movie without doing research. But in music, for some reason, the word research is bad. There's an idea in musician circles that if you're listening to anything but your favorite song, you're committing a mortal sin against art. Inspiration is research, only in a much more fun and interesting way. In fact, the two terms are laughably similar in definition, with practices that are nearly identical. The difference is, when we say inspiration, it seems so much more fun, since getting inspired is a largely enjoyable process. But research, as someone who just finished reading 450 pages of scientific studies on creativity, I can tell you it's one of the most boring things you can do. If you read articles on how musicians made a record, you'll hear them talk about crate diving or having intense listening sessions. Niall Rogers talked about doing research for David Bowie's record Let's Dance in his memorial to Bowie. For the next few weeks, we went on an art search. We were looking for inspiration. What would this album, which would end up being called Let's Dance, sound like? We didn't know. So we just went out and started researching. 
This being before the internet, we actually went to the New York Public Library and to people's houses who had large record collections. We also went to record stores to go bin diving. Along the way, this research won't be all fun. As Albert Einstein said, if we knew what we were doing, we wouldn't call it research. I joke that no one listens to more music than me to not enjoy 99% of what I hear. Every week I'll listen to a dozen or so records while I work that I greatly dislike. This isn't out of some sort of musical masochism. Instead, I listen to a lot of music to find inspiring thoughts to apply to my work. Part of my job as a producer is to understand the inspiration my collaborators are taking in so I can make them happy with what we create. I need to have an inordinately large musical vocabulary to understand how I can help express their vision. The ride of research is about discovering what you don't like just as much as it is about what you do like. Just as you wouldn't expect everything you read when researching a term paper for school to be worth putting in your paper, this process also explores what not to do. Part of research is taking in some inspiration you dismiss as well as ideas you feel passionate towards that you investigate further. Just as we talked about when finding your voice, figuring out what you don't want to do by finding why music isn't emotionally resonant to you can be more helpful than knowing what you do want to do. Steal from your favorite thieves. One of the worst fictions of being creative is that to make good music, you must never steal. Otherwise, you're not creative or original, which are somehow synonymous. If you hear someone else's idea and apply it to yours, no matter how creative the recontextualization, you must be a hack. The first mistake of this thought is a concern with how your music is received instead of making the music you want to hear. The second mistake is that there's never been a song where an educated ear can't spot an inspiration point. Anyone who's made quote-unquote original music that's a breath of fresh air knows where their influences came from. They view their own work as being quite derivative, since they know exactly how those influences shape their creation. These influences are either not the common influences everyone is used to, or they possess diverse enough influences that it doesn't sound derivative of one single artist. They've learned a vast vocabulary of inspiration to draw from so that it doesn't sound like an imitation. A common creative quote attributed to a handful of people is, Steal from one author? It's plagiarism. Steal from a hundred? It's inspiration. A perfect example of how inspiration can be both veiled and obvious at once is the classic Beastie Boys song, Girls. While the lyrics are excessively sexist, to put it kindly, there's no doubt this song was solidified as a classic a long time ago. But until producer Rick Rubin revealed it, you'd never know that the song form is stolen from the Isley Brothers' ubiquitous song, Shout. While the song doesn't share the same chord structure, emotional intent, tempo, or lyrical content, it imitates the form by saying girls instead of shout in between every phrase. Had Ruben gone to his grave with that, few listeners would have ever noticed. Whether or not you know the inspiration, the song is still thoroughly enjoyable. The takeaway from this example is the use of one small element from an influence applied perfectly to a very well-researched sound. Since they draw far more from hip-hop influences, and in this song's case, childhood nursery rhymes and frat boy cliches, the influence of the Isley Brothers song is hidden in this recontextualization until the inspiration is exposed. The inspiration helped further the song's intent while being thoroughly disguised among a collage of influences. Expanding Upon Great Ideas Amateur artists imitate, great artists steal, is a famous quote that sounds great but neglects the way artists interact with their influences. For example, take the influence the Beach Boys and the Beatles had on each other. Brian Wilson was famously blown away by the Beatles' rubber soul, specifically that it contained no quote-unquote filler tracks or covers. 
The Beach Boys were still filling albums with padding for singles and cover songs, so Rubber Soul's elevated creative heights struck Wilson as a new mark he had to hit. The innovation in Rubber Soul was groundbreaking at the time, so Wilson responded by crafting pet sounds. The Beatles then heard pet sounds and responded with Sgt. Pepper's. Paul McCartney would later say, without pet sounds, Sgt. Pepper wouldn't have happened. Pepper was an attempt to equal pet sounds. When gaining inspiration, a musician will ask, how can I do something just like this? What they should be asking is how they can do work that improves upon this with their own strengths, tastes, and emotional intent. As a creator, learning to hear the ideas an artist is expressing by elaborating on them with other influences is the key to making worthwhile work. Instead of imitating, try to gain a vision on how this can be approved upon within your voice by drawing from what's emotionally resonant to you. Research helps you obtain vision. Musicians are often unaware that playing a part softer in a vulnerable soft song will help elaborate on the emotion they're trying to convey, or composing large dynamics in their song will help reinforce a dichotomy evident in their lyrics. They can't even hear the little inflections of their favorite music since they haven't studied it sufficiently. They've never heard the difference between a soft drum hit to start a song and a big one that determines emotion. They don't know the nuance of a dark symbol making the mood of a song darker than a bright one. Too many musicians have never put the time in to hear what emotions they can convey by playing a different gauge of string, using less treble on their tone, or putting a quiver or more breath on their vocal. They simply hope it works out instead of choosing intentionally. Research allows you to obtain this vision. As you research, you can begin to find the subtle shades and sound that can help your vision of how to express yourself emotionally. If you know the tools at your disposal, you can expand on performances to reinforce your emotional intent. Being fluid gives you the ability to express your authentic emotions. As we do research, we learn the tools available to express our emotions. The more tools you understand how to use, the easier it is to find the right one to express yourself with. Since we respond to the authentic expression of emotions, it's crucial to understand how you develop the ability to express yourself. Fluency is the ability to draw from inspiration by turning it into the expression of our emotions. This skill is important to express yourself authentically since you need a wide vocabulary to express your emotions. If you're trying to tell someone how you feel, yet you only know a hundred words, it can be hard to describe the complicated nuance of emotion you feel. Fluency allows us to express the emotion we're trying to convey as authentically as possible since we have more tools to describe this emotion. The great creators are always fluent in what they make. It isn't a passing interest they're lightly interested in. When a musician has a limited amount of fluency, it's obvious to everyone listening. They have a limited palette to express themselves with, and it shows by making a less potent expression. This is what regularly leads to being perceived as derivative or imitating since the tools being used aren't diverse enough. Therefore, the origin is easy to see. When they're well-researched, there's a huge lexicon of inspiration to draw from. The embodiment of fluency is the ability to draw from hundreds of sources instead of a few. If they have a limited lexicon of research, the expression is less potent since they can't find the most effective devices to express their emotions with. Chance favors the connected mind. Talent hits the target no one else can hit. Genius hits the target no one else can see. Arthur Schopenhauer. When we see someone create something amazing, we often have no idea how anyone could ever come up with it. The first time you hear Master of Puppets, Bombs Over Baghdad, or Come to Daddy, it's easy to ask yourself how anyone could even craft a song like that. But there's usually an explanation for it. The artist is fluent in their craft, so they're able to make connections which they can express in ways those who aren't as fluent can't understand. It's said that Einstein wasn't the best physicist of his time, but he saw everything instead of knowing everything. He had a great oversight of knowledge that was able to connect things others couldn't understand for being fluent in many aspects of science. 
One of the common assumptions made of successful musicians is they lucked into it. While they may be lucky, more often than not, luck is mistaken for knowing how to make the best of life's circumstances by seeing what others don't see. While you'll occasionally see a musician succeed as a one-hit wonder or have a short career, the musicians who continually make great music are more fluent than others. They know when to take the right chance, connect it with something else, and turn it into opportunity, which is commonly mistaken for luck. Chance favors the connected mind. Stephen Berlin Johnson. This quote gave me one of the biggest epiphanies in all of my research for this book. The more you do research, the more you see how each piece of the puzzle connects together. When your mind can visualize how the pieces fit together, it can see a small piece of inspiration to take advantage of as quote-unquote luck happens to come your way. This is why luck is rarely actually luck. Instead, those who are well-researched are constantly making connections others can't see that can maximize what's given to them in life to make the most of this inspiration. When you happen to be in the right place at the right time, you're able to see what's available by making something great from it by exploiting chance. This happens every time a lyricist hears a great turn of phrase that would fit perfectly in the subject of a song they're working on. But it's not just luck. One of the reasons research is so important is it helps us develop an expertise of our creative medium. Once we gain this expertise, we can achieve more than stringing two ideas or a mosaic of a few elements together. We can piece together a vastly complicated collage of our emotions that's inspired by the makeup of our research to express what's emotionally resonant to us. When we're fluent, we understand countless tools that we can utilize to express an emotion that enables our expression to be more resonant since we can choose the most potent tools to express ourselves with. Anyone who's being creative is stealing from their favorite these, whether they know it or not. It's not that we enjoy the most original music, we enjoy the music where creators have made enough connections to know the right ways to elaborate authentically on their emotions for the maximum amount of resonance. They have a large lexicon to draw upon when they need to make their intent as resonant as possible and are proficient in the skills to correct flaws and mistakes. When you have a limited lexicon, you draw from a limited pool of resources that aren't always the right elaboration on your intent. Those with a vast vocabulary can find the most effective emotional tools to elicit the most potent expression of what's inside them, which is commonly perceived as originality. Since our emotions and vocabulary are unique to ourselves, the more fluency you have in expressing yourself, the less it sounds derivative. The works of those with a limited vocabulary inherently become derivative since they only have a few tools to draw from. However, for this music to be emotionally resonant, this vocabulary needs to be an expression that's elaborating upon the intent. But because there's more to draw from, this also results in the sound being perceived as fresh or original. When you only know Tiesto or Galantis' tools, you won't be able to draw upon a wide enough set of options to express yourself. Your language is so limited that to articulate yourself, you'll never be able to express the nuance and detail needed to give a listener a proper understanding of an emotion. But once you learn the words and their many uses, you can begin to express how you feel even when it's complex. This musical vocabulary could be expressed in many different palettes. Those using traditional rock band instrumentation or the standard dance synth set need to employ different rhythms and sonic trickery to express their emotions more potently, whereas those who use different ethnical influences are incorporating other musical languages to communicate with. Fluency and emotional expression is constantly evolving. In James Flynn's TED Talk on IQ, he talks about how the average IQ of each generation is about 30 points higher than their grandparents' generation. Despite the internet being full of articles on how each generation is getting dumber from various ailments, video games, iPhones, Snapchat, or whatever advancement conservatives who wish it was 1950 are pretending poisoned our society, the science doesn't agree. What Flynn describes is our grandparents never talked in hypotheticals. Instead, the most common expression was plain language and the occasional light metaphor thrown in for a relation. 
The way we're able to convey emotions to relate the human condition is constantly evolving, and we're becoming more fluent in how to relate it to one another. Everyone has had thoughts they can't figure out how to express. As we're able to build on the vocabulary of others who learn how to express the thought we've been trying to say, it becomes easier to express new ideas as we learn to talk about them fluently. As we begin to understand the world better by figuring out a more macro understanding of emotions, we develop new ways to express how we feel. A decade ago, the fear of missing out, aka FOMO, was rarely discussed or expressed concisely. Now it's one of the most common emotions expressed by artists today. Take a look at this on Google Trends by typing it in and watch it grow and inevitably decline as the concept becomes obvious. As we figure out emotional shorthands, we learn to elaborate on thoughts that bear greater resonance to our present experiences. Our musical instruments also evolved to create new envelopes and tones, which can express emotion in new ways as these new sounds sound closer to what our emotions feel like. The sound of distorted guitar opened up the doors to express more aggressive sounds in music, and the invention of the sampler allowed all sorts of lyrical narratives to be painted in hip-hop. As instruments evolve, we can make new sounds that express emotions in greater resonances. The way we express ourselves is constantly evolving through lineages of inspiration. For example, you can't have a Daft Punk record without Kraftwerk coming first and Detroit Techno after them, since it would seem too weird and noisy. Without Daft Punk, you skip the inspiration for Justice and then Skrillex. With each subsequent year, the way we're expressing ourselves becomes more and more complex. By hearing possibility, we're influenced by it and continue to build off new possibilities shown to us by those we're inspired by. Just as the Beatles went from love songs to talking about spiritual enlightenment in less than a decade, we're forever evolving the complexity of discussing the human condition. We're furthering our discussion of the nuances of life. Every year our language evolves to talk about more complex feelings in more detailed ways. It's commonly said that lyrics are emotional shortcuts. As we begin to understand what they hold, cliched shortcuts lose their resonance. To express new emotional territory, you have to devote yourself to become fluent. There's a reason there's rarely a moderate-selling record that employs only a single instrument and voice. Our need for more complex emotional elaboration deepens as we get used to artists finding ways to further the emotions we want to be comforted with using more narrative tools, so we continuously crave new ways to express emotions. While there are classics that never die, as well as those who appreciate the simplicity, the vast majority of us are looking for new heights to be hit in emotional power. The low-hanging fruit is gone. It can seem pretty ridiculous how little creative output musicians release today. Releasing a dozen songs every two or three years is a pretty common occurrence for established artists. Looking back on artists of the past, this is at an all-time low. Let's remember, the Beatles' entire catalog occurred in nearly 10 years, and they recorded about 275 songs. Once the Ramones and the Clash had their intent down, it was easy to crack out four classic records in about three years. With classical composers, you'd have Beethoven, who's not even the top five in this measure, churning out 110 minutes of music every single year. This is not to say that an artist that's turning out a large quantity always results in high-quality work, but with these outliers, that was the case. One of the reasons we see this slowdown in output is the immense amount of time it takes many artists to contemplate an expression that isn't overly derivative. Most of the low-hanging fruit in creativity is gone today, so artists now need more time to develop a large understanding of music since the most simple emotions of the past have already been expressed. Today, if you wrote a song with an emotional expression at the level of The Beatles' She Loves You, 
You'd be laughed right out of existence even at a fifth grade recital, since that expression is taken for granted as being a given. While in my life is one of the most thoughtful and beautiful expressions of love ever written, it has been expressed countless times, and anyone looking to do this sentiment needs to find a new way to do it, since that ground has already been tread heavily. The common complaint in classical music today is that every new work ends up being avant-garde. This is also caused by most would-be classical composers creating IDM and other forms of electronic music, but that's another story for another time. To make music resonant, we must dig deeper than some of the more obvious themes made in the music of yesterday. We need to find new ways to express ourselves, since hearing the same musical conversation over and over again gets boring. You'll see this evidenced in pop records that regularly employ 50-plus producers and songwriters. While internet memes will mock this throughout your Facebook feed, there's a reason for this that has a parallel in science. Before 1975, there were plenty of lone wolf inventors who made great strides innovating scientific breakthroughs. But now that we've discovered most of the low-hanging fruit of innovation, we need contributors who are experts in multiple disciplines to make innovative creations. The same has happened with music today. To make music that's resonant to the masses, a few heads are usually needed. The pop groups of yesteryear wrote amazing songs, but we're tired of these songs. We crave new emotions, and since the bar for emotional communication has been raised, it becomes more difficult for a single creator to have all the skills to evoke a new emotional expression. The cumulative skills of these collaborators may not always be necessary, but are a faster route to an inspired output that achieves the results record companies want, which is sales. The innovators of every genre never had it easy. To express an emotion within them, they had to become fluent in their expression to give us new heights of resonance. You can trace this back to their pedigrees. The Beatles played covers for thousands of hours at Hamburg, learning every tool of emotional expression in the book available for rock instruments. Mozart's most famous work was number 25. Becoming fluent in his expression took many lackluster works. The Ramones changed the sound of music despite many cynics equating it to an accident from a bunch of dumb guys from Queens. It was no accident. While their songs seemed simple to play, the true intensity of the Ramones was derived from Johnny Ramones' innovation of doing all downstrokes that brought a new aggression to music. He developed this sound by disciplining himself to play only downstrokes. After being a bass player in the past, it was easier for him to deal with a smaller gauge of strings to handle this expression most musicians shied away from. Just as the simple one-word band names are all gone, so are many of the simple ways of expressing an idea. As time goes on, you need greater fluency to make emotionally resonant work since we crave new ways to comfort our emotions. Barely a decade ago, artists rarely had access to good quality reverb. Now every computer can include it for a few hundred dollars. As we get access to a larger palette, we find more ways to express our emotions. To hit new heights, we need to form ways of expressing ourselves that are more complex than those of the past. Those developing new emotional resonances in electronic music are spending hundreds of hours in front of a computer composing a track. In rock music, they have to gain such a larger fluency of a genre to evoke new emotions that it becomes rarer and rarer. This is why the artists who win the Grammy for rock these days are rarely expressing themselves with traditional rock instruments. The low-hanging fruit is gone, so for there to be any resonance among the masses, they need to discover a whole new way of communicating with different tools. Since the low-hanging fruit has already been plucked, we need to gain more fluency than previous generations of musicians to express ourselves. We as listeners want to hear more resonant expressions of an emotion. To do so today, you can't just come up with three chords on a guitar in a simple strumming pattern like the Rolling Stones used to. We've heard people express themselves with tools that elaborate upon emotion further than this can convey. This is why music is ever-evolving. You need to become familiar with the vast amount of tools available to find out how to reach higher levels of resonance. Finding Inspiration the possibility of possibility. 
Science has observed that creativity is inspired by the possibility of possibility. When you see others coming up with creative ideas you'd never think of, you're suddenly inspired by what's possible for you to do. Take, for example, a study showing that people are more creative if they listen to stand-up comedy before doing a creative endeavor. Stand-up comedy is one of the ultimate forms of creativity since it commonly strings together connections that others haven't thought of to make us laugh through a fast-paced exposure of the possibility of connecting thoughts to form a new work. For artists and directors working in visual mediums, music is often the catalyst for a vision of what's possible, just as musicians often take inspiration from visual works. The same goes for why taking a walk helps us be more creative. Seeing all the different stimuli in the world makes your brain aware of the possibility of possibility. This exposure allows your brain to free associate to make new connections. Our brains are given a constant dose of possibility when we observe the various wonders of the world and see many new ways someone has been creative. I find that if I watch an experimental movie or see an inspiring piece of art, I'll have a much easier time creating. Getting your creative juices flowing is about giving it the nutrient of what's possible. If you feed yourself with a nutritious bit of small inspiration beforehand, the ideas will come to you more easily. The possibility of possibility gets even bigger. Whenever a new genre or movement happens in music, you'll see numerous musicians come to it at the same time. The same goes for technology, which is why we see clusters of inventors doing the same innovations at the same time. As we see what's possible from one creator, a handful of others get inspired by the same creator and expand upon their idea. In music, we hear new heights emotions could be taken to and figure out how to expand upon them with our own emotional tools. Reverse engineering, also known as learning cover songs. In hardware or software development, it's illegal to reverse engineer another person's work. For the Luddites out there, if you open up computer code to learn how an engineer made a piece of technology and then do a few tweaks to it, you're breaking the law. In music, you're doing the smartest practice you can do to get better at music. It's common sense that you should start making music by doing covers. Designers are taught in school. They can grab the color scheme from another work in Photoshop and tons of other tools to reverse engineer the way a design was put together. After all, everyone with even a cursory knowledge of music is happy to point out the Beatles started as a cover band. But this goes deeper. Covering songs can be fun, but deconstructing and observing what makes them tick is some of the best research you can do. The way we figure out how to express ourselves emotionally is examining other songs that have given us a similar emotion then figuring out what could be applied to the new song we're going to make. This also works for the songs you don't like. Whenever you hear a song that doesn't sound right to you, you should figure out how you'd fix it. This can help inspire you on the tools that'll develop your own songs. Inspiration is learning tools that allow you to be fluent in expression, and this technique is one of the fastest ways to gain fluency in these tools. While this is cursory knowledge for most artists, it can be overlooked that you should continually reverse engineer what makes your favorite songs tick, so you can figure out how to express your intent with the tools your favorite artists use. Creative Fan Fiction One of my favorite exercises is to get an album by a band I love and open a blank session on my computer. I listen to a verse and then write what I imagine the chorus might be before hearing theirs. I may listen to one song and then mess around to figure out what I'd do for the next song on the album. Hearing the difference between theirs and mine usually inspires a totally different idea that I can later apply elsewhere. The group Spoon says after singer Britt Daniel makes a demo, they'll think about what filter they can apply to the idea. They may consider what Dr. Dre or Elvis Costello would do with a song to parse how to apply that influence to a song that isn't a direction that the inspirational artist would normally do. Inspiration is commonly finding an influence you admire to figure out how to apply what you enjoy about them to your own compositions. While this practice is mistaken as imitation, if you pull from a wide variety of influences in all your songs, you end up with a collage that resembles who you are. If you're choosing properly, it'll be choices that augment your emotional intent. Inspiration from Collaboration 
When you hear stories of the most classic rock bands, pop stars, or even Daft Punk, you'll hear talk of how important it was to listen to music with their collaborators. The discussion of what they find inspiring and how it can be brought into their intent is one of the best ways to do a resonant work. This collaborative research is now often pushed to the wayside with tight budgets and limited time. Today, artists don't schedule all the time to communally listen to the records they love to bring parts of music they enjoy from others into their own music. This research not only gets everyone on the same page, but hearing the different ideas collaborators extract from the music you're using for inspiration leads to great epiphanies. Finding collaborators to discuss mutual inspiration points with can reward you with insight that leads to huge artistic breakthroughs. In my time producing records, collaborative research and the discussion of what each person hears can exponentially increase the resonance as each collaborator brings different observations and expertise. Find inspiration inside your own work. Inspiration can even come from what's already inside your song. Rick Rubin says Eminem often finds his cadences from rhythms already in the song. He hears internal rhythms in tracks. His phrasing is glued to the music that if small details are changed, it ruins the interaction. Listening to what's already in a song to find ways to change up existing melodies and rhythms can help reinforce hooks inherent in the song. This goes for listening to your past work as well. Hearing how you didn't do something right and figuring out how to improve upon it in the future is often the genesis of ideas that are in line with our intent. Inspiration on display. Collect books, even if you don't plan on reading them right away. Nothing is more important than an unread library. John Waters. A common trait among creators is to have some of your favorite creations on display to be reminded of them. It's common to keep the books on a bookshelf where you most often look to be reminded of the ideas inside them. The same could go for posters, vinyl, and other physical media for music. Maintaining playlists of the music you've enjoyed can be employed to remind yourself of where you found inspiration. Having a reminder of those you respect in sight keeps them on your mind to remember what you should consider in your work. Shaking up inspiration. A lot of the research I talk about here is very deliberate and nerdy, but there are far more funds to gain inspiration. Brian Eno's Oblique Strategies cards allow you to draw a card that you agree to pursue the intent of in advance. These cards contain instructions like, don't be afraid of cliches, simple subtraction, and abandon normal instruments. These cards are meant to give you a random way to leave your comfort zone with imaginative prompts to find new inspiration. There are tons of ways to shake up inspiration outside of the normal methods we are commonly told. David Bowie would write chords on a chalkboard and point to them at odd times for musicians to change chords. He'd later take the best bits to work into songs. You could devise all sorts of games and exercises to get odd outcomes and find how to build them into your songs where they're emotionally appropriate. Your inspiration diet. Just as you'll only be as healthy as what you eat in your exercise regimen, your creative output is dependent on the inspiration you take in and how regularly you perspire just as you perspire during your workout. Since inspiration is a kid to nutrition in this analogy, your music will be the product of what you listen to the most. If it's what everyone else is listening to, you're more likely to make music that doesn't find new resonances. If you're taking in new inspiration from uncommon places in music, it'll bring on inspired work. Right now, you're probably thinking, but what if I only like rock or pop that's on the radio? Well, that may be resonant to you, but to make music that has new heights of resonance, you'll need to dig deeper. To find new ways to express the emotions in you, you need to find new ways to explain how you feel. The palette of only understanding what's currently popular won't allow you to discover the most resonant expression of your emotions. Most musicians who only enjoy what's on the radio are that way because they've yet to do the research to find more tools that could be emotionally resonant to them. Instead, they settle on what's easiest to consume by flicking on their car stereo rather than taking the time to get to know the many other influences their favorite artists have consumed. I'm not saying to make good Afrobeat music 
you should superfluously listen to classical music and EDM on a regular basis. This research doesn't need to be diverse in genres, but if you're going to stick to one or two genres, make sure you know those genres exhaustively. This can take effort for some, and it isn't always easy. Simply turning to the classics or what's popular won't be enough. You need to search until you find influences that are resonant to you and explore them to become fluent with all the tools at your disposal to express yourself with. There's a balance to strike between being authentic and doing this superfluously. Forcing repeated listens to Mahavishnu Orchestra to get better musical ideas can be good for some musicians, but forcing that influence into your music when it has no resonance with you leads to making inauthentic drivel. Being weird for weird's sake or inspired for inspired's sake won't lead to resonant music. We won't love everything we ingest, but we need to continually find what we can take from what we find resonant. It's healthy to try new inspirations in an exploration to find who we are, but forcing yourself to get inspired by music you think will give your music a great depth doesn't make it emotionally resonant. Making sure your inspiration is properly nourished. There's a famous saying that gets tossed around stating that you're the product of the five friends you hang out with the most. In finance, there's a similar saying that you're as rich as the five people you talk to the most. This also goes for musical influence. What you listen to the most largely shapes the songs you write. With years of music listening, this can be diminished down to what you listen to over the course of your life. But for beginners, this is especially crucial since you don't have years of accumulating influence, standards, and palette to draw from. After establishing that inspiration is research, we need to recognize that you should be conscious of the inspiration you're taking in as if it were a diet. When I'm trying to get inspired for a record, I try to consider my inspiration diet to nurture myself so I'm sufficiently ready to perspire. This is what I consider so I'm on the best possible diet for a project. Favorites versus Fresh it's easy to get lost in your favorite records since getting to know them is some of the most important listening you can do to figure out what you love about them. Plus, it feels great to listen to them. But you also need to be taking in new records to gain fresh ideas. Even if these records weren't recorded in recent years, you need to continue to get inspired by new source material. The inverse can be true by focusing on new records versus exploring your favorites to figure out what makes them tick. If I give a concentrated listen to many of my favorite records, even after listening to them for decades, I can still find new details from them to get inspired by. But there's nothing like fresh, new ideas to get you inspired. The Greats versus The Local Trash For every one of your favorite local groups doing amazing music that the world may never hear, there are 10 other bands in the scene who aren't that special, but get listened to far too much. I've seen many musicians get lost in listening to their friends' music that's just poorly done versions of great bands. This particular affliction goes especially for bands who only listen to the other bands they tour with. It drives their standards down, which makes them think subpar ideas are great, instead of getting used to the high standards they need to achieve what the best musicians have. Bells and Whistles versus Solid Songs On some records, an artist can be filled with inspiration for song structures and hooks, but lacking in how to do the moody soundscapes they hope to explore. I'll often go on an inspiration diet, depending on what a band needs from me. If a band needs help coming up with soundscapes, I may end up listening to Mars Volta Clinic, The Talking Heads, and Chrome to get ideas for what we could do. If they need help with song structures, I'll listen to artists with inventive structures. But if the band has a mind for those bells and whistles, I may try to get into the mind of their favorite songwriters to make sure we stay focused on solid songs. Consider where you feel deficient inspiration-wise, and consciously take in inspiration that'll help nurture what you need on a project. Intentionally take in inspiration. If you stuff yourself full of poems, essays, plays, short stories, novels, films, comic strips, magazines, and music, you'll automatically explode every morning like Old Faithful. I've never had a dry period in my life because I feed myself well. Ray Bradbury 
If you're feeling drastically uninspired, it's time to go down the inspiration family tree of reading interviews with your favorite creators to see what inspired them. Perhaps click on the Related Artists section of your favorite group Spotify or see who Metacritic says they're similar to. Observe this family tree to see who your favorite acts are influenced by. Check out who they're compared to on review sites or research the acts they wear shirts from. Make a playlist and give each song a few listens to try to find their merits. Fasting to get inspired. Removing all stimulation around you is a really positive thing in terms of stimulating your creativity. Grimes. Just as we talked about inspiration being a diet that requires nutrition, you could also do a cleanse or a fast to get creative results. While you need inspirational nutrition to get inspired, there could also be a time in the process where you need to abstain from inspiration so you're not influenced by others. Many songwriters become thoroughly inspired and then isolate themselves in an intense famine when they start writing. By keeping a distance from their influences, nothing comes out that's too derivative. This regularly occurs after an inspiration period during the early shaping of their songs and ends when they need to get inspired on how to complete a few final details. This famine could even go for expressing yourself as well. Robert Smith told me during the making of The Cure's classic record, Disintegration, that he wouldn't speak to anyone all day. He could ask someone to pass the salt, but he wouldn't fulfill his need to get feedback from other humans on his emotions. Without his ability to communicate when he wrote his lyrics, he'd have an extreme thirst to communicate how he felt. This technique was also applied when he did vocals for the record. It would leave him dying to express himself by the time he hit the mic each day to sing. It goes without saying that the desperation to connect resonates through the recording of an album known for being one of the saddest records ever made. For all three books I've written, I've written down as many thoughts I could think of on the subject as I can get out before I start my research to not have the established books in the genre cloud my judgment and own unique voice. I then begin to read other books on the subject to get new inspiration and figure out how to reconsider what I've come up with after the main form is shaped. I also employ this famine when I mix records for artists where I wasn't involved in the recording process. I'll mix the song the way I hear it and then listen to the rough mix the band had as well as the reference mixes they gave me of other artists after I try out my natural instinct. If the rough mix or references make me think my mix can get better, I bring in all those elements. I trust my gut along the way to decide what influences I should take in but don't allow my objectivity to get influenced by others so I can form what's emotionally resonant to myself first. This allows me to give a fresh perspective to the project but then blend it with whatever other influences they may have had to get the best of both worlds. Inspiration from other disciplines. One of the most overlooked ways to get inspired is from other disciplines. In practice, this is architects learning from filmmakers who talk about how much improvisation they do on the set or about how they rethink form in their discipline, evolving it by picking up useful techniques from other creative disciplines. This is why you see Kanye West talking about being inspired by Steve Jobs, Steve McQueen, and Stanley Kubrick. Much of this book I drew from the ideas of business bloggers, photographers, and directors as much as I drew from musicians. If you work at other creative outlets, you could apply these processes to whatever field you create in. Every skill I've learned in record production makes writing a book easier. I've learned I should capture my ideas while I'm in a flow state and then edit and draft later, just as I do when writing music. If you're fluent in creating in another craft, it could often help your expression skills manifest in unique ways that allow you to add resonance others aren't fluent in. In every book on the subject of creativity, this is a skill noted in every creator who's gone on to do work that changes the way we see a discipline. Metaphor Quotient In science, there's a concept called field theory where you take a theory or technique that works in one field of science and apply it to another. To apply field theory to your work, you need to develop the ability to observe how you can apply what you see in one field to another field. This ability is measured by metaphor quotient, aka MQ. Just like IQ, intelligence quotient, MQ is the ability to apply metaphors into your art. 
whereas IQ is the measure of intelligence. MQ is the measurement of how well you can apply metaphors to your art. MQ manifests itself in countless ways. Here are a few examples. Honing in on your ability to see the creative process of someone in a different field and apply it to your own. Seeing how one lyricist applies a metaphor and figuring out how to do that yourself in a different way. Hearing a rhythm in your radiator and applying it to a song. Finding the roots of a word or a concept and finding other ways to recontextualize it in your lyrics. Finding metaphorical sound effects to help emphasize your lyrical narrative. In her book, The Creative Habit, Twyla Tharp talks about the importance of metaphor quotient as it inspires new ideas that aren't obvious. She even argues that MQ is as valuable as IQ in the creative process. The best songwriters and producers commonly cite movie director advice as being inspirational to the way they work. This is a reoccurring theme on my podcast where I interview record producers. You could always catch an insightful mind knowing many great quotes as compared to those who can't see past their nose singing the world is what it is or whatever reductive statement of the moment idiots use. Artists who purposely seek out metaphors and then apply them to their work can fluently express their intent. One of the reasons this concept isn't discussed is because there's no real way to measure it on a scale since it's too wild, so any measure is purely observational. Since our fluency varies so much from medium to medium, MQ is hard to pinpoint on a simple test. For example, my brain can take business practices and see how they work in music or film in an instant. Yet the second you talk to me about how a painting's color subtly expresses an emotion, the whole idea is lost upon me. I've never taken the time to learn the intricacies of expression in visual form, so my MQ is very low in fine arts. While I'm fluent in one field, I'm nearly blind in another. Many great creators consider the field they're known for to be their second discipline. Kurt Cobain, Lars von Trier, and David Lynch all consider themselves to be artists more than musicians or filmmakers, despite being renowned as some of the most innovative people in their fields. Outsider art is cited as being the example of inexperienced creators being able to make great creations, but the key to outsider art is those who do it well have a high MQ and are applying field theory to a new field. High proficiency in one field can be applied to others. Improving your MQ MQ is one of those few skills no one is born with. It is instead learned it can be developed with practice. In Daniel Pink's A Whole New Mind, he suggests improve your MQ by writing down compelling and surprising metaphors you encounter. Watch movies to find subtle hints like film noir showing characters that are conflicted or lying are lit with their face in both the light and dark. Reading interviews with artists who are highly metaphoric or take the time to observe details in great artists' work can bring out your metaphor quotient. A habit that helps me develop my metaphor quotient, along with an understanding of artistic growth, is to take my favorite artist's work in series. I'll watch all of my favorite director's movies in a row, even the movies I don't enjoy, or listen to my favorite musician's records in chronological order, including the B-sides. This practice allows me to take other tools and details to understand the correlations in the metaphorical tools they use. I watch a few of their movies in a day, or one every few days, but I do it in as short a period as I can to keep the correlations fresh in my mind. If I understand their earlier work, it helps me understand the greater depths of their expression they achieve later. Most importantly, when I do this, I concentrate. I don't look at my phone unless the work is on pause. I don't do bills while they're on as I try to see the details in what I may have missed before when taking them in casually. When I do this with music, I make sure to have headphones on so I can take in as much of the details as possible so I'm influenced by as little outside sound as possible. I try to ingest as many metaphors and hidden subtleties in their work as I possibly can. While my approach to this is a bit academic for some of my friends, it can be applied to some of the most annoying moments in life. 
When you're dragged to see a movie, hear a song from a genre you don't appreciate, or have to go to a museum you have no interest in, make the most of it to find what you can learn from the metaphors and use throughout these works. Not only will it make the time less miserable, but you may even get inspired. Inspiration shapes your palette. Your palette is one of the most determinative factors in what your music sounds like. One of the main ways inspiration affects creators is learning both what they do and don't want in their palette. Hearing others' music to decide what tools to use is one of the most defining factors of how your music will sound. Think back to the most basic example of palette. In the 1950s, recording studios didn't have instruments on hand for musicians to explore their every indulgence. Unless you knew someone who played an instrument, you couldn't use that instrument as part of your palette for a recording. Since the 80s, as sampling technology became prominent, musicians have been able to employ any sound they could think of, coming stock with a Mac laptop that costs $900. Not everyone wants to be the Flaming Lips, Beck, or the Polyphonic Spree who will use any instrument in the world to create with. Instead, most artists paint with a similar palette of instruments. EDM artists mostly use synthesizers, while punk bands rarely dare to exceed the guitar, bass, drums, and vocal format. Hip-hop producers, who largely sample, will keep their palette limited to sampling specific genres and instruments to keep their palette within their tastes and certain flavors. Being conscious of your palate can have many benefits for your music. Many studies on the subject show those who impose limitations on themselves end up with a more creative result. For some artists, knowing every instrument is an option can create an eye-opening world of experimentation. Others experience option paralysis and benefit from the focus of limitations. If you're Jack White, you see the challenge of not using the editing tools inside a computer program and a 16 to 24 track tape machine's limits as being what excites you. He knows he has to make the most of the limitations he's imposed on himself, using a finite amount of tools to accomplish his intent. There's an artistic cliche that goes, don't be held down by the palette everyone else paints with. While this saying encourages some artists to superfluously use different instruments, it's really trying to tell you not to feel bound to the same old tools as everyone else. Figuring out the instruments and tonalities that help express your emotional intent is a large part of what makes you unique. Figure out who you are and what parts of palette you like to employ for research into your music. Palette can be taken to many other examples than just tone and instrumental use. The arrangement, syncopation, harmonization, and production tricks in your lexicon give you a greater vocabulary to use to express your intent. This is an essential reason research is crucial to your work. Thanks for listening to this chapter. Stay tuned next week for another chapter. Like I said, this is available till July 1st for free. The Kindle book is 99 cents on Amazon till July 1st as well. And if you enjoy this, please, 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 please tell other people about it. That's why I'm doing this. Thank you so much for listening.